Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined again by crowd favorite Parker Thompson, returning back to the podcast, and then new guest Antonio Garcia Martinez, author of Chaos Monkeys and a lot more to come. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So Antonio, you wrote Chaos Monkeys, what, two years ago, three years ago? It came out in 2016, so not quite two years ago. Yeah. And it was, two, more than two to years me ago. as a reader, it read sort of half Hunter S. Thompson, half Michael Lewis, Silicon Valley. Exactly. That's exactly what I was aiming for. Yes. Thank you. So it's sort of your personal story. I would say first half of the book, going, you know, starting a company, going through YC, you know, you say, you know, call out people, who's great, who's not, what, what that journey is like to sell a company, to raise money from investors. And then the second half is your time at Facebook, how Facebook ads work. If you were writing that book today, how would that be different? You know, I don't think it would be too different. The first half would definitely be about the same. I mean, it's very much a typical story. Go through YC, start a horrible company not knowing what the hell you're doing, <laughs> and then manage to somehow spring yeah. the golden parachute and have yes. a, a dinky little aqua hire that I managed to make way more dramatic than it needed to be yes. in retrospect. So the first half I don't think would have changed. The second half with Facebook I think would have changed. Um, in my very immodest, presumptuous, first-time author way, the same conversation we're having now about Facebook I thought the book would at least trigger or stoke, right? But obviously it took a bomb the size of Trump to actually make the conversation happen. So I think in retrospect, a lot about how Facebook monetizes would stay exactly the same because I think that that really hasn't changed. However, I think I would have talked more about the bigger picture of organic news distribution and what, and the political impact of that and the whole that I would get more into. Yeah. Yeah, Let's get into it. So that's potentially what your next book is going to, going to be about. A little bit. I don't want to be that guy who's constantly talking about Facebook. I'm already, I, frankly, I, I'm already, kind of, I'm already kind of, I'm already bored by it, actually. But there's actually very few people who've been there who are willing to talk on the record. I think it's yeah. basically me and Stamos at this point. And yeah. so it's like we get trotted out whenever there's like someone from the former insight say something. Um, I, I, so I don't want to talk about Facebook. And, and in fact, I only use the term Facebook as shorthand for like this smart, like everyone becoming a cyborg and melding our brains to a, to a phone, like whatever you want to call that, we can call it Facebook if you want. But I think the particulars of Mark Zuckerberg's creation, I think are actually less important than that sort of epical event in terms of the bigger scheme of things. With that as the understanding of Facebook, it is about Facebook in terms of, I think, the bigger impact that that has on everything, all the cultural institutions that we were raised in. I, I think one of the interesting things about people my age and, and maybe Parker's age as well, because you look to be about my age, is that, you know, we're that bridge, I guess, sort of Gen X bridge generation that were raised fundamentally in an analog world. My mother was a librarian, right? Like to me, you know, you know, there was this meme about like, what's the thing you could tell millennials that would like most shock them? And I think the thing that I tweeted about that was like, back in the day, the only way to know about a thing was to find either a book that talked about the thing or someone who knew about the thing. Otherwise, you just didn't know about the thing. There was no way to know, right? And and books were still, you know, relatively rare and expensive, right? There was a reference desk at libraries because most families couldn't own all those books. And you had to go through a set of drawers like the size of like an SUV, if not bigger, and go through little cards and try to find the book. And half the time you wouldn't find it, right? And you just didn't know about that thing. There was, there was whole lacunas of knowledge about the world that you just didn't know. If it wasn't an entry inside world book, it basically didn't exist to you, right? And so I think going from that world to the world where we are now, we're literally you know, what's in this little thing? I'm waving for radio. I'm waving the phone in my hand, you know, contains more than I ever would have imagined as a child, right? Like we are the generation that spans that. I think it's a huge transformation. I think it changes a lot about the world. And what I fundamentally want to write about is how we go from that Gutenberg paradigm of like the written word, like literally written on dead trees as the repository of human knowledge to this new, weird, fragmented, ephemeral media landscape that I think in many ways is taking us forward to the past. In other words, it makes us more tribal. It's kind of like oral cultures. It's very different than sitting down and reading an 8,000-word New Yorker piece, right? Which I, I, I frankly doubt many people actually do anymore. So th- that's kind of what the book's about. And you've been studying Marshall McLuhan and other media theorists or restudying. I, I was one of these people that spent too long in grad school. So I have this like academic bee in my bonnet that insists on going and reading as much I could, as I can tolerate about a certain topic. And so I went back and, and read... Most of the big media theorists from like Walter Lippmann and whenever it was, 30s and 40s, up until like Neil Postman in the 80s and 90s to get a feel for what they were thinking about. And what was shocking to me is 
how much they got right. In fact, I was just reading McLuhan has an amazing, if you just want like the short version of McLuhan, go read the nine or 10 page interview he did in Playboy in 1969. That is probably the most succinct distillation of his thought that you can get at. And he could have written that yesterday. Like literally a word would not need to be changed to update that for the modern era. And what was his punchline? Well, the idea is, is much of what I already said, right? Like he saw new electronic media. His, his classic uh, masterpiece is called Understanding Media or, or the Extensions of Man or whatever, right? He saw this new media as literally e- extending the sensory system of man in a way that it wasn't before, right? In other words, you suddenly have eyes. Your eyes are suddenly the smartphone that everyone carries around them in the sense that you can, in effect, be there via live stream, which, again, if you think about it, it was not long ago that that to get like real time streaming video, you need to have like a van with a big ass antenna and a camera operator engineer inside. Like it was expensive. There's no way you could do that. Right. And, and suddenly now man's sensory organs have extended in that sense all over the world. And I think what that does, his whole medium is the message thing, which is like a cliche that everyone pretends to understand. I did too before I actually tried getting through his book. And then I finally actually understood what it means. It's not about the content of the message. What you're looking at isn't necessarily even that important. It's how the medium reshapes your thinking about the thing that really matters. Not to like immediately trip over the third rail here, but like the Kavanaugh, the Kavanaugh hearing, for example, right. or the thing with the Catholic kids and the Nathan Phillips, right? Like it's not even so much the content of that. It's how it was presented and digested and parsed and distributed and reacted to that really mattered, right? Like you could literally switch out almost every character in that drama. So long as the basics were, were the same, you would have ended up with the same sort of fiasco, right? And so that's what McLuhan means when the media is the message that reading a textual description of that in the Wall Street Journal in 1984 is a very different experience than going and reading the 10 second clip on video on Twitter with a hundred people of hundred of your friends commenting on it. Right. Like that's what he means by the medium is like that medium change completely. Like the message is almost irrelevant. It's how the medium actually shapes that, that shapes your reaction to it. And so how do we use these new mediums to become less tribal or less polarized? Oh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's impossible. <laughs> I think we're, I think we're headed straight back to, I mean, I, I well, from the media perspective, I think we're headed back to like almost the media landscape that existed during the time of the American Revolution, the founding fathers, right? Ben Franklin wrote under 14 different pseudonyms during his time. He would have been like you, Parker <laughs> Federalist Thompson. papers, yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry, Bill Jackson. Yeah. Right, right. The fe- right, exactly. Federalist papers would have been like Neon Taster or whatever, whoever the hell he is, or, or um, you know, um, Comfortably Smug or whatever on Twitter. Right? That, that's exactly who they were. That's, that's exactly who they were. Like those saying, oh, no, things were better in the past. Like, no, are you kidding? Go back and read some of the stuff they wrote. It was nastier than now. I mean, the, the whole duel between Alexander Hamilton and Burr was over something they had written. Well, but it's not linear, right? There are times that when it was better and times that it sure, was sure. worse. I mean, I, I guess I tend to think uh, I tend to think we're in a transition period. It's not obvious if the future is going to be better or worse. So, like, I look at this as, like, the Facebooks of the world are the dog that caught the car, right? You invent the feed. You're like, we're, uh, what's the classic Zuckerberg quote? It's like, I'm just trying to make a website for college kids, right? I think that's right. And if that's all you want to do, and then you make the feed and you get all the users, I mean, the feed is the thing that matters, right? Like the feed is the, the medium across all these things, right? The feed is one. We all use it. It shapes the way we think. It shapes our discourse. You see your friends clustering around that thing, or you don't, depending on the person who designed the feed. And I think where we're at, per- personally, we are in an era where the people aggregating the users and deciding what we see the gatekeepers, right? Because the internet, we used to think the internet was this gatekeeper free thing. It turns out that was a temporary period, right? And it's consolidated as we've seen in media generations past. In the past, we had eras of responsibility and responsible gatekeepers, right? This, let's say the newspapers in the last generation. And now we're in a period where the gatekeepers, the feed makers actually want to pretend that they don't have any responsibility, right? Like they don't decide which 80% of messages you don't see, right? But they do. So the question in my mind going forward is, okay, will these new gatekeepers evolve into, I would characterize it maybe as more responsible. You might look at it a different way, right? I think people are really afraid of that idea. They don't want to come to grips with the idea that there are going to be gatekeepers. We'd all prefer that there weren't, but there are. And the question is whether they're going to be good or bad. I think by analogy, um, to tie it back to tech, I mean, there's this great Peter Thiel sort of line of thinking around the, you know, he, he likes to be contrarian, the virtues of monopoly, right? Or empire. He talks about empires, right? Of course um, he would. But yeah. Right? Yeah, of course he would. Well, no, there's some, there's some validity to the thinking, right? Um, 
in times of empire, you get uh, what you might call positive externalities, right? So uh, maybe in the Mongol Empire, that was the Silk Road and uh, increased trade and wealth uh, across Asia and into, into Europe. In the newspaper era, maybe that was high quality journalism, right? So the question going forward is, will these monopolies that exist and, and you know, you could argue degree, but certainly the, these new media aggregators are to some degree monopolies. Will they become virtuous monopolies? Will they become virtuous empires? Or um, will it all go to shit? No, I, I agree with most of that. I mean, certainly there's there's definitely positive. The first one that came to mind is actually AT&T and Bell Labs, from, in my case, as a former physics guy, right? Um, the transistor was invented at Bell Labs, and they actually had a number of, of uh, Nobel Prizes. I mean, the thought of Google or Facebook winning a Nobel Prize now seems a little, you can't quite imagine. I guess Google maybe. I, I would like to, to push back slightly on that, though, just because I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Take WhatsApp, for example, which I've become a big user of recently, even though I haven't been historically. You know, WhatsApp to me is like a perfect product foil for Facebook for a couple of reasons, right? There's no feed. There are no ads. There's no data collection because it's end-to-end encrypted, right? Put it this way. If, let's say I put you in a time machine and sent you back to the 1750s and asked you to explain our modern smartphone era to the person of average intelligence in the 1750s. Now, if I send you back to the 1950s, you can make some analogy to like radio, TV, whatever, right? But 1750s, pre-industrial, no notion of electronics or anything, right? How would you explain it? You would have to resort to witchcraft. You'd have to say, in the future, we have this magic amulet. And just, just believe me, how it works is you can transmit your thoughts to any human on the planet and any group of humans that want to listen to you. And you can listen to the thoughts of any human on the planet, which if you think about it, the fact that we've virtualized identities with this thing, again, I'm waving the phone, right? That we've all melded our brains to it, that like the input devices have become so seamless that effectively I can do it even faster than I can talk, right? Usually that's, that's effectively what it is, right? At heart, right? And so, I mean, obviously we've seen WhatsApp implied in the rise of Bolsonaro in Brazil, in real life mob violence in India and a bunch of other nastiness, right? And so in some sense, like you could, you can already, you can already get to the problems that we're all talking about with social media without the feed, without ads, without data, without any of the sort of nasty boogeyman that the New York Times keeps on harping about Facebook. Like we can still get there without any of that crap, right? And so I, I, it somehow seems to me the challenges around this technology really revolve around humans coming to terms with this like supernatural power that we've all gifted basically everyone on the planet who can afford 30 bucks for like an entry level Android phone, right? I mean, there's an interesting discussion that goes on, right? You hear people say, um, well, the problem is media literacy, right? We just need people to be more literate ar- around their media. And there's some indication that the olds are share more fake news and the young share less. I'm, I don't know. I mean, I think that's possibly true. I'm undecided. But my, my gut is that it's not correct. My gut is that, and I wish this weren't true, right? I, I, I prefer uh, less paternalistic solutions, but my, my sense is that if we got that all right, we'd still have a big problem. But if you get the um, benevolent aggregator right, because we have aggregators, that's un- undisputable. The question is whether they're benevolent or not, right? If you get that right, you potentially solve the problem. Um, so I, I believe WhatsApp is, I believe I'd read WhatsApp is um, thinking about ways of limiting how fake news spreads, right? Right. Yeah, that's that was as of this week. Yeah, yeah, around, yeah. Right? So it's an interesting idea um, and, and a positive, positive move from Facebook. So for those listeners who aren't familiar, I think it's worth stopping here for a second. The, the news for this week is that I think they're either expanding it worldwide or where they have made that limitation, they're making it permanent. But the key thing is that in markets like Brazil and India, they basically reduce the number of times you can forward a message or the, or the, the size of the group you can form to something like five or 20 from either essentially unlimited or like well above you know, Dunbar's number of people. So it used to be like 280 or something or 240, I think. And now it's like five or 20. So like the limitation is basically dumbing down your magical little, you know, clairvoyant um, amulet such that you can only talk to five people at once effectively. We're introducing friction. I mean, right. yeah. these are low cost transactions to spam fake news. And it turns out fake news is is a lot more engaging than people like sugar more than vegetables, right? We live in an era where, you know, our body wants sugar and in nature, that's fine. And in non-nature, yeah. we eat Snickers. But is that is that always true? Here, here's another angle on the same problem, right? Like, 
I'm not convinced that the sort of world of Cronkite and three networks and for those too young to even know who Cronkite was, okay, back in the day, back in the, back in the battle days, before even me, okay, there was this one guy who basically told America the news and then he used to close his broadcast, which was every day at eight or nine or whatever on the one of three channels. And he would say it and that's the way it was. He would literally close every transition saying that and he could unironically say that like all Americans would nod their head and say, yep, that's the way it was because good old Walt said it, right? And like, you know, just to give a pepper with a bit of history, I think either LBJ or Nixon said, like, Cronkite came out against the Vietnam War, and he basically said, that's it. If I've lost Cronkite, I've lost America. Right. Um, Right. McCarthy McCarthy. McCarthy came out against Nixon. He was known as the most trusted man in America. Right. Exactly. So maybe that's not the world. Maybe that's not the world we want to live in. But but that's the thing. I think when Cronkite, bless his heart, but I'm sure he got it wrong a lot of the time. And we all went along with the wrong Cronkite version. And we just never understood how wrong he got it because there was no one there with a smartphone recording it saying, "Ah, actually, it looked like this happened. You know, I think the... It's totally right. I think the flip side of that is I'm sure he worried about getting it wrong quite a bit, right? It's this sort of the Peter Parker with with great power comes great responsibility. I think that's what's missing. You know, you have, you know, Mark Zuckerberg has more power than Walter Cronkite ever did, but I presume doesn't stay up late worried about it. I mean, maybe does, but I don't know. Yes. I I think the the difference... And it's funny, Joe Lepore has a great piece in, I think it was The New Yorker, about like the whole history of journalism, where it's going. Can journalism pay for itself? Uh, another piece of news this week is that yeah. uh, BuzzFeed announced so much yeah. layoffs, right? And so, and this is shocking for those who don't follow the journalist thing too closely, because in some sense, they were considered to be in the vanguard of digital yeah, media, right? Was, like, was the future. Yeah, I mean, I, I was not particularly surprised. I mean, I think to talk about media for a second, these are broad publications that are cranking out by and large, Buzz, BuzzFeed actually does some high quality reporting, I think. Uh, but in the context of this broader thing where no one would ever subscribe to BuzzFeed, but we're happy to give the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the New Yorker or the Economist our money. That's a model that works, right? There are thriving journalistic models. And I think an interesting thing about the mod- modern media landscape is there's never been a time where there's more high quality journalism. It's just like, Finding it is a needle in a haystack problem, right? So we're overwhelmed with crap. We just have a curation problem. And you can curate that by just saying, look, I'm going to outsource that to New York Times and pay and read them. Or the other places that I go that aggregate media could provide some of that to me for free. Right. Well, or I, right. Or I swipe through Twitter and then I, I, I see yeah. like the hottest takes that typically but are. How do right. investigative journalists, et cetera, make money? Right. Is, is it Ben Thompson for everything? Well, that's, well, that's, that's a, a slightly different model, right? Right, um, subscription. That's a, well, sure, subscription, but he's he's targeting a particular niche right. technologist. Yeah. I mean, that model works phenomenally well, but so does the New York Times. Yeah. Well, but I think the New York – so getting back to the Cronkite question, like I think a lot of people are very are getting very cynical about the media precisely because we are seeing these other stories emerging. Uh, yeah, I guess I tend to think there's an interesting dynamic in the media, right, is fr- first of all, we use the word media and we don't delineate between – media and journalism. And I think that's actually an interesting distinction, right? So when you make that distinction, I think what you find is that if you're in the media and not a journalist, you have a strong incentive to foment distrust in the broad, the media where we use media to describe journalists, right? So in other words, if you're Fox News, actually, the more people distrust media, the better it is for you because you're creating um, propaganda, right? And distrust drives your core audience that you're monetizing closer to you, right? So I actually think broadly, a way that we should talk about media is to make this distinction and educate the public on what this concept of journalism is. So, you know, I I was somewhat dismissive of this idea of media literacy, but I think meta media literacy is really interesting. So let's think about what the process of journalism is so that you as a reader can go out and assess for yourself whether the media that you're consuming is journalism or something that doesn't quite meet those standards. That's slightly different from saying, like, how do I think about reading a piece um, to assess whether it's got bias in it, for example? Yeah, it, it still seems odd to me that we're in this weird place that, on the one hand, again, you can literally get video, live streaming video of whatever the event in question is, and yet that actually creates more doubt rather than less, Right. One thought experiment that we ended up killing the column because I, I took too long to write it. But like in the Kavanaugh hearing, just to, to trip over the third rail yet again, right? Like 
everyone saw it happening basically in real time or the Catholic student kid, right? Like imagine, imagine that media became even more intense. Like imagine there was like a VR camera there and you had VR headsets and you could like literally, like you could actually feel like Kavanaugh nervously drumming on the tabletop or whatever, or you could like see the kid with a smirk, like in the actual event or whatever. Would that make your conclusions as to what you saw more sort of fair-minded and real, or would it actually be more polarizing and kind of distorting in a way? I think context matters. So I'm thinking about the, you know, the picture that turned the Vietnam War, right? The napalm-covered right, child, girl, right? Yeah. Just like, okay, well, there's the image, but the image is taken in context. And I think that's true of all of these media things, right? The reason you and I might have had very different perceptions of the Kavanaugh hearings is not because we all watched the same video and had more visceral reactions to than if we might have all read it in the paper 30 years ago. It was that the pre-roll for you was Tucker Carlson and for me was Rachel Maddow or something, right? Like right. There's this context that you're primed to perceive the same video or the same VR right. or the same image in different ways, right? right? And it's that priming, I think, that really creates the... Right, but the weird thing is that they all have the same video. And again, because of the context thing you just mentioned, we end up with like a more, a more polarized view of it than when we had less data to go on, right? That's the weird thing, right? As we get to more and more data and see it like as real as almost being there, we actually end up more polarized rather than less. Do you know what the data look like on this? Because you say this and it, it intuitively feels correct, right? It, it all it feels correct that, you know, things used to be better. I don't know about better. I don't know if polariza- lack of polarization is consensus necessarily a good thing. But I definitely think it's more polarized. Yeah. I mean, there's, I suppose I've seen some data on political polarization, but it's not obvious to me, right? And you hear occasionally, oh, it used to be worse. We were talking about the Revolutionary War and so on. Um, the nasty things people did and said and so on. So, so it'd be interesting to Try to quantify that. I don't, yeah. I don't have that data. The other uh, media theorist you mentioned, Neil Postman, wrote Amusing Ourselves. Oh, that's a great book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why was that so prescient? Uh, so it's funny. I did a column on exactly that. For those who haven't read it, so Neil Postman was a really interesting media commenter sort of dude. And it's definitely worth reading. They, they reissued it 25 years later. It's a classic. And I, I think why it's such a classic to him, again, as, as with McLuhan, the hot new media that was disrupting everything was TV or network TV, right? Like, which now sounds ancient, but it, you know, at one point TV was a big deal. I think it was prescient because it, he saw, and I'm kind of conflating him with another great book, which is also very, uh, Daniel Borston's The Image, which is very similar. Um, and they're both like, look at this new electronic media and you're taking, you know, politicians, you're making them go from statesman to showman, effectively, right? I mean, there's classic example, obviously, is things like the Nixon-Kennedy debate, in which Nixon looked horrible and sallow and kind of grumpy. Well, he didn't and, put on makeup, right? Right. He didn't put on makeup. He, well, he put on lazy shave rather than shave, so he looked all kind of sallow. JFK was great, and all of America swiped right on JFK and swiped left on Nixon, effectively, right? To use well, the in fact, actually, it, when they pulled people afterwards, I think this is really interesting, people who listened to it on the radio thought Nixon had won the right. debate. People, people who watched it on TV thought Kennedy. Right, and that, that's the jump right there from what, you know, Right. In yeah, 1942, yeah. he would have won, but in 1960, he did not. So yeah, the, the, you know, Postman looks at that switch of like, what does it take to win given every media at the time? So if you look at somebody just to totally throw another monkey wrench into this whole thing, AOC, right? Like, I think she's a genius of, of marketing. I've, I've gone, I've, I've, you know, her political views are a different thing, but in Wired, I think she's a genius of marketing. And I think she's definitely the beginning of a new wave that her Instagram account is like the debate moment for like social media, I think. And, and, you know, and, and I contract, like, but that's always been true. You go back to the Lincoln-Douglas debates. That was the biggest media phenomenon of the time. They used the telegraph to get the speeches all over the United States. Lincoln actually lost that race, but he was actually nominated for president two or three years later. He went from a nothing provincial politician to president of the United States based on a series of open-air lectures that yeah. we now commemorate with. Is AOC closer to Lincoln or closer to Kim Kardashian? Well, I don't know. It's a bit of both, I guess. I mean, it's the, the point is that she's she's mastering the medium that it that and that and that molds a certain person, right? We're never going to have a William Howard Taft, the bald man who weighs 360 pounds anymore. It's just not going to happen to be president, right? So, or an FDR who was uh, in a wheelchair and didn't, no one knew. Right. That's the thing. No, it's, right. Most America didn't know that. And that just wouldn't be the case now. I mean, I guess the other question is like, is more truth necessarily better? I just read this great book. I actually had dinner with him two days ago. So it's a guy named Martin Gurry. He wrote a book called Revolt of the Public. Um, it actually came out from Strike Press, published right here oh, cool. in San Francisco. And um, he, he's, a, he's a former CIA analyst who was their media analyst for Global Media. And he just thinks that 
what a lot of this media is doing is undermining the influence or the confidence that we have in a lot of these post-World War II mass market institutions like the New York Times or big government or whatever, and that it's impossible for them or the, the police, for example, like with body cams and videos, we just don't trust the police like we used to. In fact, almost every societal institution other than the military has had a degradation in confidence by most polls, right? And I think it's just... Yeah, when there's cameras everywhere and everything can be spun, no one can believe in anything, right? And Yeah, I think it also has to do with the business model around these things. Again, you, you know, if it is profitable to sow distrust in, you know, it's always been a, it's always been the case that attacking the incumbent politicians is a politically profitable uh, activity. And so you've always seen it, right? It has become very profitable to attack journalists if you are not good at journalism. It's become profitable to attack these other institutions in, you know, multiple ways. If that weren't the case, you would see less of it. Right. right? Do we need to reform information markets in some way? I, so I think an interesting thing here is, as we talk about, as we talk about the media environment, something I think makes no sense at all that is a, is a common proposal is we just need to regulate these institutions, right? And as bad as it is today, the only way to make it worse would be to say, let's put the government in charge of telling Mark Zuckerberg what should be in the feed, right? That would be the one way to Because that would just work. solidify the yeah. power. So, you know, as I talk about the stuff and write about the stuff, I actually think that um, we need to acknowledge the fact that there are gatekeepers and we need to develop a set of ethical norms and institutions that are widely held within technology because let's, let's concede that, you know... The, technologists or the gatekeepers that look roughly parallel to the ethics and norms in journalism, right? And you can go and you can look them up. They're enumerated. All journalists can tell you broadly, right? Like what journalism is and what it isn't. People get fired, right? And so if it were the case that the average Facebook employee thought through the lens of an ethical framework that looked similar to the way that an average reporter thought, we build much different technical systems. The world will work much differently. The thing that you experience when you open up Facebook or Instagram or WhatsApp or whatever it is would put different information in front of your face and probably it would be better for you and for society, right? So I tend to think that the conversation we should be having is one around self-regulation and thinking deeply about, you know, the ethics of technology development. Some people are talking about this, but I think broadly we, we're having a different conversation, right? I mean, making a call for civic virtue is great. Like, I'm all for civic virtue, but it just seems to completely unrestrain the capitalist enterprise these days. And and, and the other, the second thing I would say is, as a former Facebook employee, they, they weren't totally ethicsless. They weren't like sociopathic mercenaries. They, they, they had a very particular corporate culture and a particular vision for the world. It's just completely at odds with what the rest of the world thinks, right? I, yeah, I, I mean, I'm critical of Facebook in certain ways, critical of Twitter in certain ways. I, I don't go so far as to say they're, you know immoral bastards, you know, I, I tend to tend to think more, I tend to characterize them more often as amoral, right? It's sort of like, here's a set of problems that you just wish wouldn't exist, you know, debatable whether that makes you evil or not, right? Just plugging your ears and going la 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 la. But nonetheless, they need to move on these things, right? They need to uh, be thinking deeply about these things. I think actually contrasting Twitter and Facebook is interesting, because I think Twitter is actually engaged a bit more with their set of problems, which overlap, but are in some uh, some regard distinct from Facebook's. So there's a lot you can say that's negative about Twitter, but I think they've said, all right, how are we going to encourage or afford, like in, in user experience, you'd say afford, right? Like what are the affordances of our product? Does it make it easier to argue with people? Does it make it harder to argue with people? And I think they've made, made some steps that are interesting along the way and, and beyond that signal that they're trying. Yeah. But what if users revolt? What if users want that stuff? It's like the WhatsApp thing of like limiting the forwarding feature. Like if that really is the value add of, of that, then some less scrupulous company will come along and take those users. I, I guess I'm an optimist in the sense that I think it, this is a question of time horizon. I think on a long enough time horizon, interests converge, right? The interests of society, the interests of the individual. You're such an optimist. And, I, I am, I am. So look, the classic joke on Twitter is like, I hate this thing, right? Like I hate it, but I can't quit. It's like cigarettes, right? That's not good. You know, that's not good for Twitter. It's not good for Facebook when you're like, this is a product that makes me hate my cousins, right? It would be better if all of the, like, all the dopamine that I got from these products was maybe less in degree on a daily basis, but 
positive rather than negative, right? So I think the long term, and this is the irony of sort of the, the, you know, the nouveau corporate structure where you've got the Zuckerberg who controls the whole damn thing is he should be able to think on a 20 or 30 year time horizon. And that would shape the product in a way that would be better for society, better for the user, better for Facebook. I'm in the camp that believes that these companies are not limited by um, short-term greed or profit motives, although it's not binary. I just think they're not doing it, and they could be doing it. That's definitely true. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, short-term revenue was never really a factor at Facebook. I mean, to give you a concrete example, uh, when we sort of talk about the political landscape, right, when you see Ted Cruz in, in Senate hearings talking about, like, we need to go regulate Facebook, fake news, and there's data on this, right, is much more prevalent in the quote-unquote conservative segment of society, right? It's just a fact of data. When Facebook makes it easier to spread fake news, right, it makes it easier for this segment that supports uh, Ted Cruz to believe that Facebook is against them, right? This is a um, unvirtuous cycle, right? So it is in Facebook's best interest to take the short-term hit of actually doing something to regulate fake news internally, which would be just a shitstorm, right? Short term. But I think that there's a long-term scenario here where this stuff just goes on long enough that it becomes politically viable for a conservative coalition to do some stuff that's really not in Facebook's best interest as a corporation. So I I think we are aligned as a society, as a set of corporations as individuals we want to be happier facebook wants to make more money we'd all like democracy to thrive and the real bottleneck is these gatekeepers owning that um, responsibility Anthony, where do you differ from parker in terms of proposals or solutions or yeah i mean i, I guess i don't yeah i don't know that i accept facebook or twitter's gatekeeper status right like taking the crown of media intermediation from the editor-in-chief of the New York Times and putting it on Zuck's head instead, I don't know if that's really the solution. Like, they don't want the crown. Like, they've... They have it. Well... They have a billion users. They have a billion users. Right, but they don't want to exercise that power. Like, they don't want the job. You see, they, they have it. They make the feed. You look at the feed. They censor something like 70 or 80% of all of the content that you Censor is a strong word. They well, downrank and feed. Sure. I'm using, so I'm using a, a provoc, I'm being provocative with the term, but the way that I think about censorship, right? Um, cause we have this broad conversation about censorship. I'd be interested in your perspective on it. People will say this thing. I don't want Facebook to decide what I see. I don't want them to censor my feed. And the reality is, they are showing you a small percentage of the the units of content that they could be showing you based on what your friends and family are sharing because you just don't have enough time to read it all, right? So we have to start with the fact that Facebook already decides which subset of the information you could see, you do see. And so, okay, so I call that censorship. You can call it whatever filtering, whatever you want, right? So great, we all agree that Facebook is deciding what you see. The real debate we should be having is, are they doing a good job of it, right? Are they picking the subset that is best for you, best for society, and best for their business? I would submit that they're not. I think they would say, gosh, we just don't want to think about that problem because it opens up a can of worms that makes us really uncomfortable. And I'd say, well, you know, tough shit. Yeah, I mean, I think the basic debate here is the difference between the editorship and an algorithm, right? Like at core, that's what it is. Because what you're saying is, and again, it's not censorship. Censorship implies that the person who wants to get their message out wants it to get out, and you're thwarting that, right? In Everybody this case, wants their message to get out. I right. want my message but to get out. But it's one thing to say, I don't think you should say what you're saying, versus, you know what, our model says that like, what you're saying is frankly not very interesting, so we're not going to show it to Uncle <laughs> I, Joe. I think that's an issue of semantics. I mean, look, the, the editor of the paper says you get to publish in – I don't get to write uh, opinion pieces in the New York Times. I would write lovely pieces in the <laughs> New York Times. I'm such a smart guy. My opinions are so good. They won't let me. Right, They're but, censoring me. But no, but the difference is that the, the editor says, eat your veggies. We think you should read this because whatever our education says that this is a good opinion to read. And what Facebook says is, well, we're showing you shit that you've engaged with. I mean, I that's, think this, that's a very different decision where I, I would push back in a strong way because I think you're saying something that is, is a common refrain is you're saying algorithms aren't people. And I just think that's bullshit. People write the algorithms, right? People are making decisions. They may understand those decisions in an indirect way, or they may not understand exactly what the outcome is going to be precisely, right? They don't pick the discrete articles, right? 
But we can actually look back in retrospect at the outcome and say, well, okay, well, here was the result of the algorithm that you designed. You're the editor. You wrote code to do your job for you. Here was the outcome of it. Let's collect data on that and decide whether we think that outcome is good. Are you a good editor based on this data? So we should be having a conversation around, are these algorithms resulting in things that are, again, good for the business. Right. But that training set that you just described at the end of the day can only be things that you do on Facebook, right? It's, it's literally engagement or time on Facebook or, or it, at the end of the day, it's, it's Facebook usage of some sort. That's the only signal they have. I to, think to you, deviate from that script, they'd have to say, you know what? This would actually get more usage. But even if this gets less of a readership, I mean, this is basically what editorship is. Like, we're not going to publish if it bleeds, it leads, clickbait, whatever. We're going to talk about the war in Yemen, which at the end of the day, not that many people actually want to read about in a deep way versus whatever the Kardashians did. They're saying, eat your veggies, right? Yeah. And you're saying, that's it. Abandon the algo and, you know, impose this whatever. I guess I would say to sort of add a layer of nuance here that when I think about this stuff, I actually don't think this is a broad problem. I think if you just said, look, like the way you need to think about this Facebook is with respect to a narrow set of issues, I think particularly around politics and democracy, right? I don't think that publishing a bunch of, you know, fake news about Kim Kardashian or just a bunch of news about fake Kardashian, I don't don't actually think that's bad for the world, you know? Like if you read a bunch of stuff about fake, uh, about Kim Kardashian and that's all you read and you're a quote unquote low information voter, it's probably actually not that bad a thing. Right, where you as long as you don't go vote, yeah. Well, no, you can. You know, (laughs) look, we we've survived hundreds of years with low information voters, right? It's it's not the case that people are less informed today than they were hundreds of years ago. You know, across the you know the bell curve of informedness. It's what happens in this narrow segment, right, around politics and democracy, where I think we need to think really hard about these things. Yeah, I mean, I think politics is definitely different. I think, you know, different standards should apply to political ads and all the rest of it. I don't know if it's a fundamentally different problem. No, but, but I think, I still think that's the fundamental duality. It's like, you're basically training on some success metric, engagement, usage, whatever, or you're imposing some view that is, I think you should be reading this. Uh, you know, I think that's a very, there's something in between that, right? There's the editor sitting in a room, the philosopher king sort of deciding, right? There's the, we only look at dashboards and data right. and optimize for those. There's stuff in between. You can go talk to your users. I'm sure Facebook does this to some extent. You go out and you have a focus group and people say, I I feel like crap at the end of the day. I keep clicking. I can't not click. Great. You're selling cigarettes. Let's get into a different business, right? Let's think about how to build a more sustainable business. So I think you can collect other kinds of data than clicks and um, you don't have to be on the other side of the spectrum either, right? We can go out and we can think deeply about these problems and use some combination of qualitative data, philosophy, whatever. I've got it. You put a plug into your phone that you then inject into a vein and it measures your cortisol levels. (laughs) And then based on your cortisol levels, Facebook then feeds you different pieces of content. That would totally work. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure people will. As soon as they get the portal out there, we're going to have the Facebook Uh, IV that you just plug in. Facebook Neuralink. We'll get there. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Antonio, if Zuck comes to you, or not to make it Facebook specific, if Jack Dorsey comes to you, one of those... And says, "Hey, I'm going to do whatever you tell me to do. Oh my god, that'll make the world a better place." What do you What do you tell him, Zucker? <laughs> a better place, <laughs> or the place you want to live in? Maybe uh, I don't know. Give away most of your money. I don't know. That's know, as it relates to the media problem, the, pro- the problems oh. that they're facing. I really do think it's a cultural problem and it's a generational problem, right? I think, you know, Steve Jobs once famously said, I think the original version of the Mac shipped with a keyboard, which people thought would be a problem and because no one knew how to touch type. And he said, well, death will take care of that problem, right? <laughs> all the old people who didn't know how to type, it's like, well, and all the old people who don't know how to tell truth from falsehood because they're used to Cronkite telling them, and this is the way it is. Well, that won't be a problem in 20 years. Um, you know, and you, it's funny, you call it media literacy. It might just be media cynicism, right? Like, again, to take, to take the, the grand media theorist look on things, Look back at every piece of media. The, the first film that was shown in Paris, I think it was the Lumiere Brothers, was the famous story, was a train pulling into a station. And everyone was so freaked out because they had never seen a image. They jumped out of their chairs thinking they were about to get run over, right? Or consider radio, right, which the fascists in Europe convinced educated populists to invade their neighbors and exterminate ethnic minorities. And now NPR has to beg you to give them 50 bucks for a tote bag, right? Like, it, it just, it loses the effect. The magic is gone. TV, I find boring as hell. I could not possibly watch... Uh, some of the 80s TV that Neil Postman was talking about and, you know, and amusing yourself to death. You, you couldn't pay me to watch that crap anymore. To oh, watch. man, you got to go back and watch some ALF. It's amazing. And actually, I used, I think I used the example of ALF in my column. as <laughs> like, I believe it or not, like an alien that shows up and lives with a suburban family used to be like the most highly rated show in the United States. 
how do you fix Twitter? I mean, it depends what problem you're talking about when you talk about fixing Twitter, right? Are you talk because I sort of think about these these social products as a as a you know pipeline, if you will, right? So you've got these Reddit groups where there's like these fringe people hanging out, coming up with ideas, right? They're surfacing these ideas, they get popularized on Twitter. That actually pushes them into the cable ecosystem, right? Sort of the a little bit more traditional non-journalistic ecosystem, and then they get pushed into Facebook from there, right? So I think. To me, when you think about this problem of fake news, right, where the biggest broken thing with Twitter is trending topics, right? right? Something trends, that makes it a valid thing, right? It makes it the topic of the day. And then we all talk about it. We all write articles about it, right? So sort of abuse and, and some of these other problems with Twitter aside, I think actually fixing, fixing the way that Twitter trends works is their version of the Facebook feed curation thing because it is the case. Like I look at the 2016 election, right? What I think conservatives did really well or bots or whoever it was, right? A set of related groups. We just say like, look, here's going to be the topic of the day, right? We're going to talk about this email thing today, this, that, the other, those things trend. And then they're on the news and they're in Facebook and they're everywhere else. So I think Twitter's version of solving this problem is figuring out how to responsibly set the agenda because I think Twitter does set the agenda. Right. So you believe in the editor. You're saying you want an editor. I want, look, I think you do this with code, right? You can do these things with code. I, I'm not a believer that we have to choose between automated algorithms that are going to be chaos and a human sitting there, philosopher king, deciding what these things should be. I think we need to write algorithms and then reflect on how they're doing, look at the outcomes, look at the results and say, does this make sense, right? Are we creating, from a business perspective, are we creating an experience that is good for our business and good for our customers, ideally also good for society? But how are we doing? What is the result? Does it make sense? I think Twitter is doing a pretty good job. I think they are not perfect. They're getting a lot of crap. I think a, a lot of that is a function of mistakes they've made in the past, right? Jack Dorsey no longer gets the benefit of the doubt. Maybe that's fair. But I think they're trying and they're not doing a great job yet. Hopefully they will going forward. So here's a simple thesis. I want you guys to, to react to it. It's a generalization that in sort of the late 2000s, the rise of technology sort of coincided with or was synergistic with sort of uh, left and democratic uh, ideas, you know, sort of the Arab Spring, sort of the rise of Obama, uh, supported leftist institutions. And at some point, that started to shift where they started to become a threat to those same institutions, a threat to what are the traditional left institutions, universities, New York Times, you know, journalists, uh, Hollywood. And that is why and then tech over time became an enemy of the left because it threatened the government threatened the very institutions of, of which the left has thrived. How would you respond? Is that accurate? <laughs> is that directionally accurate? Oh, I think so. I mean, uh, Rico just published a, uh, they did sentiment analysis over the New York Times coverage of Facebook over time, over the past, whatever, many number of years. And you just see like the phase transition in, you know, something weird happened in November 2016. I can't remember <laughs> what, where suddenly like, it's like it goes blue positive and just goes instantly to negative and just has stayed negative basically for the past two years. You know, I think you've got to look back a little bit further. So I, I think an interesting thing about modern culture is, you know, we, we talk about sort of, you know, they, they often say, Liberals have won the culture and conservatives have won politically, right? I think if you look at the mid-90s, something weird happened or the early 90s, which is Bill Clinton showed up and he's like, actually, like, I'm a capitalist. Capitalism is good and it's cool. Let's go do this new Democrat thing, right? I actually think 92 is an inflection point in American society that we don't appreciate enough because once the Democrats started being capitalist, right, I think that Republicans lost a core issue, right? It's like, well, how are we defined? I think going back a little bit further, you had coming from the left this concept of postmodernism, right? Yeah. I think actually, if you look at the modern Republican Party, a good way to think about it is it's adopted the principles of postmodernism, right? So you end up with a party where the ends justify the means and we lack the substantive issue of the, the economy. Or and Is that your description of postmodernism? I think of, I think it's an aspect of postmodernism, right? Uh, moral relativism. So I think when you think about moral relativism, if you are a moral relativist, you can justify a lot of actions by the outcome. And I think that that's what you see in conservative media today. So I think Fox News and the conservative media landscape has adopted 
this moral relativism, right? And that's carried forward into digital media, right? So digital media is just an extension of cable news, right? Which is sort of the original, like, well, you can add an infinite number of channels. Everybody can have their own thing. So Obama, in my mind, is more of an exception to that trend, right? Like, great, he got good at communications in this digital media world and won. Not by a lot, but he won. Got a couple terms, right? So this this trend that started in the early 90s follows through to today, right? You can sort of follow this trend line through to today. And Obama is an exception as opposed to the heart of the trend where now we're sort of seeing some, a reaction to that or a difference, if that yeah. makes sense. You uh, sent me this chart over text where Silicon Valley is versus the rest of the world. Un- unpack that chart a little bit. Yeah, so this chart looks at the political divide in a slightly different way and says, look, there's... You can imagine a a four-quadrant chart where one axis is market orientation, right? Free market, closed market. And the other axis is whether you're uh, pro or anti-welfare state. So do you like Social Security? Do you like these sorts of things? Do you dislike it? Are you pro-market, anti-market? And I, I think what's interesting about this chart is it doesn't quite map to the way that we talk about politics today. Um, but it maps really well, actually, to the way Silicon Valley sits, right? Um, which is, I think Silicon Valley is very different than the rest of the country, not generally in the ways that we talk about it, right? So Ted Cruz might say Silicon Valley is very liberal, right? But that doesn't quite capture it. So what you have in Silicon Valley is everybody's free market, right? We all love capitalism, free markets, right? Um, which isn't per se a, a liberal thing. Right. Half of us love the welfare state and half of us think it's horrible, right? So you have Peter Thiel's of the world, the Keith Boys of the world, who would sort of be in that upper left quadrant. You know, we love the markets. We dislike um, all these uh, social services. Then you have other folks, uh, maybe the Reed Hoffman's of the world, maybe other folks say, hey, look, we love free markets. These things are great, but we're actually pretty comfortable with government. We're pretty comfortable with a social safety net, so on and so forth. So I think that's actually... a a good frame for thinking about the ideological differences and spectrum in Silicon Valley. And actually probably a much better way of, we should probably apply that frame more broadly to American political discourse to think about what are the parties. Uh, My personal belief is that the parties are realigning and what we're going to see is party that is kind of in that free market welfare state quadrant and one that's much more, populist and ambivalent or anti-market. I think Trump is the prototype of that. Let's have some tariffs. Let's put up some walls. We haven't quite seen where the Democratic Party is going in America. My hope would be that it moves more towards that pro-market. Could AOC, right now she seems more, I guess, more in the Trump camp, but could she embrace the free market plus social services or would that just be too hard to explain to her people? I mean, I I think personally... It doesn't seem that way to me. Um, I bet I, I think you got to reserve judgment on these people. What do we know about Beto? What do we know about AOC? We don't. We don't know much. They're good at the internet, yeah. you know. So I, I like to reserve judgment. I'm not a champion or a critic. I mean, I think the reason I'm particularly default skeptical on her is when she talks about many of these issues, she tends to express what I perceive as a zero sum mentality, which is I think what puts you in that uh, anti market camp, right? So I, I tend to be a little bit default skeptical, not when she talks about, you know, marginal tax rates. You can have high marginal tax rates and be a capitalist, right? But when you talk about income inequality, for example, as a first order issue, um, and you talk about billionaires being thieves and whatever, whatever, pro- the problem is not rich people being rich, it's poor people being poor, right? And that's where I think there's an, uh, there's an opportunity for some more interesting voices in our particular political. This is a very American-centric totally. conversation, and we could be talking about how these social trends affect other countries and so forth. But I, th- I think with respect to America, that's that's an interesting way of thinking about, you know, where, you know, where politics are and maybe where the gap is. Totally. Antonio, is your writing on secular religions about things like SoulCycle? Is it about things like how Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins themselves are more Christian than they, or religious than they think? Or all that and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm doing a piece on secular religions for for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of the things that in my grand thesis that the internet is bringing back a lot of our preliterate stuff is that I think religions are coming back in a big way. Whenever I say that, people express skepticism. Mostly because I think most people don't understand religion. There's not a lot. So I, I was raised Catholic and I went to a Jesuit school and. I know a lot about the Bible because we were forced to read it and I now read it for other reasons, but 
And a religion isn't really about deities, right? They say, you know, I don't believe in God. How can I be religious? The religion is about interpreting reality via, you know, myth, ritual, and folklore, right? Versus data experimentation and, and rationalism of, of the enlightenment. That's, that's the big split. Or narrative framework is how I think right, about right, it. You right. create a narrative framework right. and that shapes your worldview. As one example, you know, Buddhism and confession ancestor worship have no gods. And yet you would not call them religions. They're obviously religions, but they're centered around a certain myth and right. And in fact, Again, I think this is one of the big advantages I think of having been raised religious is just understanding the religious mentality in others and seeing it for what it is. Because I think it's just very difficult for someone not raised in a religion or, or who's taken it as a serious subject of intellectual inquiry to reason about it. Because they, again, they get sucked into the same Harris debate and I think they just get lost in it. Let me just sketch out one concept where Please. I think people's religious education, I think would, would give them more insight. So in, inside religion, there's, there's a notion of orthodoxic versus orthopraxic religions. And I'll, I can get into what an orthodoxic religion is, is like Christianity. Right. There's this confessed belief that there's this man named Jesus Christ, who is the son of the living God, who was reincarnated. And it's the sort of reboot of first century, you know, Judaism that, you know, I, I would say Christianity is Judaism with product market fit. Right. Effectively, <laughs> that, that, that they figured out the exact the exact you know key features to steal basic from Judaism to make it go viral for two for two millennia, basically. Right. And that's in some sense what it is. Right. But that but that's one type of religiosity. Like I, you know, people who were born again, who Christ is their savior. It's this very confessional mode, right? But then you have what are called orthopraxic religions that are centered less about, like in English, right? Faith is almost synonymous with religion. That's again, it's a weird artifact, right? In, in religions like, I, I would argue Judaism to a certain extent or Hinduism, right? It's, 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 religion is defined by practice. It's what you do, right? It's, it's actually going to temple. It's being part of a, being part of a community. It's actually embracing concrete values that you were effectively born into. These tend to be religions that also don't proselytize, right? They don't knock on your door and try to convince you to become a Hindu or... They're viral coefficients. So. Right, right, they, they, right. I mean, Yahweh just doesn't have a good enough growth team, but Jesus does, right? <laughs> growth team just sucks, right? While, you know, obviously the Mormons or the Seventh-day Adventists, they're all about it, right? They're, they've got, you know, Chamath over there running the growth team and they just spam you with emails like crazy, just like Facebook, right? And so, I mean, that's... So that's that's the big difference, right? And so the, the weird thing about Christianity is, A, that, that orthodoxic feature that we believe. And then the thing is, when, if you're in an orthodoxic faith, believing, thinking correctly, heresy, apostasy are real deep sins, right? Believing the wrong way or abandoning a faith that you professed in is a big deal, right? If you actually talk to a Hindu about their Hinduism, they're a lot more casual about it, right? I mean, you don't have... People don't get excommunicated and, you know, it, it's a very different sort of attitude towards religion. And then the other thing that I think the key thing people don't understand about religion, because again, it's, it became such a part of the Western mentality that people don't even see it anymore in that sort of fish and water way is this notion of, of millenarianism, right? You know, the Christians and the Jews to a certain extent were waiting for a Messiah who's going to change and, and fix everything, right? And, you know, the early Christians, to them, it wasn't some sort of abstract thing, right? They really thought that Christ was going to, be resurrected in their lifetimes, right? At, at Pentecost, they were taken by the Holy Spirit. And all these Pentecostal evangelicals now who speak in tongues and all this stuff are basically emulating the apostles, right? But how Christianity survived, right? Because again, it's, it's, it was a cult and there were many mystery cults at the time, is by saying, well, look, uh, you know that paradise we promised you in this world? Actually, sorry, rain check, you get in the next, right? And it turns out offering, you know, paradises in the next life are, you know, rather easier settlement terms and paradises in this term. And so it sort of survived, right? But the, the problem is that, you know, secular manifestations of this religious impulse, millenarianism, have to produce it in real life, right? Like communism, which I would argue is, was a secular religion, right? Had to produce that, that, <laughs> the triumph of the working class in real life. And when it didn't, it could only last so long, right? You could say the same thing about fascism, other versions of it, right? And so, I think one of the interesting things about current life is that a lot of the social justice crusaders and a lot of the progressive wing of the United States don't even understand that in many ways they're the heirs of deep evangelical Christianity in the late 19th and early 20th century. If you look at like what were called the great awakenings, right, in American life, it's these, these surges of religious thought and, and moments of political crisis. And we've historians, we've had so many historians disagree about how many there are, whether there's three or four or five or whatever. But it was precisely during these moments that things like the women's suffrage movement started right around the same time as I think the, the third great awakening or the temperance movement started around the same time. Um, a lot of the abolitionists were militant Christians. The underground railway was partially managed by Quakers. Like a lot of the religious crusading evangelical spirit used to be where social justice emerged in this country. Those were the movements. But at some point, you know, that whole social justice thing became a little bit too much for the evangelicals. They abandoned that and became the conservatives. And now instead we have the SJWs or whatever you want to call them. Right. So it's just, it's intriguing that we, we have again, these, 
these recurrences of this notion of creating paradise on earth, but through some sort of savior figure and attacking any heresy that goes against it. And again, we're so used to that that we don't understand that in most cultures, this doesn't happen, right? Like, yeah. Have you read this Jim Gray book yet? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The, the seven types of atheists. Yeah, exactly. yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh. That's a great book. Yeah, that, this is um, I think it's called the seven types of atheism, yeah. right? I think it's John Gray. If I'm not John Gray. John Sorry, Gray. Yeah. It's really good. I mean, he's a, I think he's a former philosoph- academic philosopher, right? Mm-hmm. So I think the first four types I understood. The the, la- the last couple he kind of lost me because they got a little too subtle. But. You know, I haven't read it yet, but the interesting idea I've, I've listened to a couple interviews with the guy. The interesting idea to me was he effectively says, "Look, like a lot of these secular movements today." are really just Christian movements in disguise, right? Oh, yeah, of course. They've accepted the basic premise, specifically around progress, right? Right. So if you think about social justice, the premise is, look, we can make the world better, right? We just need to do these things, and then we'll all move move forward. And Sam Harris, it's science, right? Right. So I think that is a super interesting and provocative idea. Um, I think he's quite pessimistic around um, progress. As am I, by the way. (laughs) Yeah, well, to me, the interesting walk away was to say, okay, well, if we all worship something... Gosh, I should really think hard about what my thing is. That, that, that's my key point in writing this thing. So, like, at the end of the day, the religious impulse in humans, I think, is just unsuppressible. And it's like sexuality, right? If you either try to ban it or pretend it's not there, it's just going to raise its ugly head in, like, the most weird or perverse or destructive form. And you just, like, you know, just reconcile yourself to the fact that you're going to have weird, completely unempirical metaphysical beliefs about things. And you should just be very careful about the things you choose to believe in because, you know, it's just amazing that everyone claims to be like this physical empiricist, but like, tell me, uh, you know, where do, where do human rights exist under a microscope? Where can I see that? Right. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, why, why, why do you care about your FICO score? That's like the most made up crappy thing. Like even money, why, why is money a thing? Right. Like that doesn't mean anything. There's no reason why that exists. You believe in all sorts of metaphysical concepts that have nothing to do with anything. Right. Why are you even making fun of the Holy Spirit? Right. And you're sitting there worrying about your FICO score. Right. But that's the, that's the thing. It's like basically what set of metaphysical concepts do I choose to pay attention to and, and, and raise your life around? Well, and how do you use them for good? Because they are right. good, right? And this is sort of the premise of sapiens, right? right. It's like, oh, we create these narrative right. structures and they allow us to grow right. societies beyond Dunbar's number. Right. That's a pretty cool thing. Right. So how do we use these for good? Even when we're talking about religion, many good things that it's done. Right. I mean, there are some positive externalities around religion that, you know, beyond the Sistine Chapel, for example, that, you know, that are, aren't necessarily worth, you know, are, that are worth keeping around. And then, you know, and part of the reason why I had this is like, I think as you do, I had young kids now, right? And it's like, all these things are basically like freshman dorm bullshit sessions late in the night until you have kids. And then suddenly you're playing with like real money on the table. It's like, oh shit, what do I teach the kid about the world and raise them and values? And like suddenly patterning somebody, the next generation's brain is like a real responsibility. And so like, Part of what my thinking about religion is like what religion to raise this kid in. So your next book can be the Brian Kaplan book on why you have no impact on raising your child, which I don't particularly buy all of it, but it's, uh, you know, if you want a free pass, right. you know, go read. There's a, there's a set of literature out there around uh, why you don't matter. I think the liberal blank slatest belief that anyone might have just runs up against the rocks of reality when you have kids. <laughs> and you realize that, in fact, that kid is just like a little mini caricature of you. And there really isn't much. Even at the age of two or three, you can already start. I can already see my my own features coming out in this kid as well as my, the mother of the kid. And it's like, yeah, I, there's no, I, I'm not going to change this. Will new religions be winner take all or will it be a long tale of niche uh, winners? And you know, So it's two things I would say here. One, because there's a VC in the room. One is, I just read a piece, it came out in the bold italic about, there actually are like these nouveau religions in the Bay Area. One I think is called Thrive. I don't, I don't want to plug them because I don't know that much about them, but there's, there's like, it's kind of like the Unitarians who are basically like a god without a god and they get together and like play the drum and have a, a whole community thing around no god. Like, and I'm a little skeptical how that can actually last, but I think it's interesting. And the second thing is I heard a, um. Sounds like a lifestyle religion to me, not going to be. Yeah. Well, oh, wow, I've never heard of a lifestyle religion. Like lifestyle startup is yeah, like, yeah, not quite as serious as like a lifestyle religion. <laughs> that was <my> <laughs> the second thing I heard is I, I, it was a podcast by, now I forget, it was either Priceonomics or maybe This American Life or whatever. One of my top three or four podcasts in which, in the evangelical world, they evidently actually do have religious startups. Like when you go to one of these, you know, sort of Bible beatery sort of, uh, you know, sub, I mean, I was raised Catholic to me, they're all heretics, but one of these subsets of Protestants, and I can't remember which one. That's what they say about you too. Yeah, I'm, no, I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. You can actually go and pitch like church VCs who will then bankroll in like a progressive, like series AB like type situation, your neighbor, and they actually follow to Entrepreneurs, there's no other word for it. I think they actually talk about it seeding churches. Yeah, right, seeding, exactly. That's what it is. They, they call like, seeding churches. They're like the match.com of which there's like a Tinder, there's like a Bumble, there's all these different flavors that can right. emerge. 
So Parker, maybe you should fund like Bad a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a good business model and tax advantageous as well. <laughs> That's as it turns out. Yeah. Um, hard to get your money out though. <laughs> I was wondering, yeah, what's the liquidity event there yeah, exactly? Yeah, uh, uh, maybe tithing. In the life after. And then you get paid later. That's the <laughs> yeah. thing. That's, again, millenarianism. Yeah, that works. It's not good for your IRR. I need, <laughs> I need better timelines. Look, I mean, I think tying it back to media, I, you know, I always thought there could never be another Beatles, right? That came along when there were three channels and, you know, there was, X radio stations and that made that, I mean, they were phenomenal, right? You got to have the raw material, but it's the biggest band in the world, partially because of the media environment that they just happened to time, right? We are probably never going to live in a media environment that looks like that. So you would probably by default think there's going to be more fragmentation, but there is this deep underlying need for community, right? So everybody worships something, be that your church, be that your community where we all get around and bang on our drums, whatever it is, right? So you should expect to see that need for community met somewhere somehow. Yeah. And some people will do it better and they'll aggregate more people and some people will do it worse. I mean, look, I'm fast. I've never been to one of these. I'd be, love to go to a mega church. Yep. Right. Like it's like a stadium and they got yeah. basketball courts and it's a community and I've read a totally. little bit about how they work. It's just fascinating. Right. It seems as much around community with like a religious veneer on it um, than it is around, you know, religion. It's a pretty interesting phenomenon, right? There's a deep need there for something, and it's being delivered by this organization. I mean, it's, that's the thing to me. Like, again, thinking about raising the kid religious, it's like there needs to be a third – like, that kid needs to understand that humans can get together and create community around common values that doesn't involve either, like, consumption or sports, right? Which those are basically the only other two alternatives in our weird neo-capitalist, like, like thing is, like, that's – like, what else is there? Like, Starbucks – you know, rose to billions by being the third place outside of like work and home. That's it. Like our social fabric is so tattered. There's not, there's no other place to go. You just sit there and buy a latte. I, I, I tend to think about just to, you know, rat hole on Starbucks for a second. I'll give you my, my favorite theory about business, which is if you can figure out how to make a, a dessert, uh, socially acceptable at a time of day where other, otherwise wouldn't be, you can make a billion dollars. That's Starbucks. It's a milkshake for breakfast. That's all it is. They sell milkshakes for breakfast. They made it socially acceptable. You can walk in and have a milkshake for breakfast and look your coworkers in the eye when you walk in the door. <laughs> that is, I don't know what their market cap is, but it's a, it's a genius idea. Just go do that. <laughs> I, I definitely agree on the milkshake thing because I, I made another market observation. So speaking of Alameda, because we both live in Al, partially live in Alameda, there's a Starbucks on the western Alameda right before the tunnel that I used to go to because whatever, it's a close cafe there. And what I discovered is this weird market inversion. I used to do the Starbucks mobile app, which is pretty good, right? Because like I hate waiting and I hate talking to humans because like everyone else, I'm kind of introverted. And so I, but then when I turned that, it's like ordering on the app is actually slower than just waiting in line and ordering because so many people had actually piled into the mobile thing. And I think queuing is part of the problem. I always get dark roast grande that's it done like the simplest damn thing to make and i'm always queued behind 10 people having the like pumpkin spice frappuccino soy i don't know what the hell it is that's like this 50, tall 50 grams of sugar right 50 it, look, it looks like it's 3,000 calories <laughs> and, it, and it evidently takes you know five minutes to make and there's 10 of them ahead of me and then i'm stuck there but you're right i'm on the milkshake front i don't understand yeah, they definitely, it's like alcohol with airports. You can drink at any time. Like there's part of the, part of the joy of it is like, like all the rules are suspended in airports. Like you can do anything. You can sleep on the floor. You can order a beer at nine in the morning. Like it doesn't matter. Like rules, like that's what I think. Maybe that's, that's another idea. Like the airport concept, but just somewhere else. Drinking at breakfast. That is a pretty good idea. If you could sell yeah. that. Yeah. On that note, guys, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for coming to the podcast. All right. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. 